church at that time, was, which was that the church needs to be the church. And so a few months later, when he was in Washington on that hot August day, what he did in his I Have a Dream speech was to call America to be America, just as he reminded the church of what it is and what it ought to be about and called them to that. So he had the same thing to say to the nation. And we have a rather lengthy clip from that that is, I think, well worth watching in full. Justin, will you please throw that up? We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. As long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not my unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. And some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friend, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream 
that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low the rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together this is our hope this is a faith that I go back to the south with with this faith we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope with this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. Something else, huh? Now, those of you who are familiar with King and familiar with Scripture know that he could barely make a speech without quoting the prophets, at least once or twice. And you may have heard in there, toward the end, a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, and toward the beginning. A quote from the book of Amos, the prophet Amos, who, just as King was calling the church to be the church and calling America to be America, Amos was calling Israel to be Israel. Now, Amos was a prophet who prophesied around the middle of the 800th century BCE. This is back before 
this is after the nation of Israel had split into the northern and southern kingdoms, but it was before uh, the northern kingdom had fallen to Assyria. So you had both the northern and southern kingdoms, the northern kingdom known as Israel, the southern kingdom known as Judah. And Amos starts off with the kind of tune that many folks were probably happy to hear from him. He starts off saying, The Lord roars from Zion, thunders from Jerusalem, and the pastures of the shepherds dry up, the top of Carmel withers. This is what Yahweh says, For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. And he goes and pronounces judgment on Damascus, on Assyria. And then, in verse 6, he pronounces judgment on Gaza. Ashdod and Ashkelon, he, he pronounces judgment on the cities of the Philistines. And then, in verse 9, he pronounces judgment on the city of Tyre, that great trading port, the Singapore of its day. And then he goes and he pronounces judgment on Edom, the land of Esau. And then he goes and pronounces judgment on Ammon, and then on Moab. And kind of like the first chapter of Romans, right? You can hear Amos's audience saying, yeah, you tell them. Tell them what God's going to do to the bad guys, right? He goes to this, I mean, it, it, it basically, see, he, he condemns the nations to the northeast, to the southwest, to the north, the south, the east, the southeast. You know why he doesn't do any condemnation to nations to the west and northwest? Because that's the Mediterranean Sea, and that hasn't done anything naughty that God needs to smite them for. But then what does he say in chapter 2, verse 4? This is what Yahweh says, for three sins of Judah... Even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because they have rejected Yahweh's Torah and have not kept his decrees, because they've been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. And then, this is what Yahweh says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. I mean they are combining wickedness in impressive ways, right? What's the problem with a garment taken in pledge? Anybody remember this from Torah? Are you supposed to take a garment in pledge? What's that? Yeah, you're not, I mean, if somebody gives you a garment as collateral, you're supposed to give it back to him at night so he can have something to sleep in. Here, you have people who have obviously not given back the garments taken in pledge, and they're lying down where? beside the altar of these false gods that they're sacrificing to. They abuse the justice system to fine people and to take wine. And what do they do with that? They use that as an offering, as a libation to these false gods. This is not a good situation. And Amos goes on. 
to remind Israel that Israel, God's people, both the northern and the southern kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, both have failed to be who they're supposed to be. They have failed to be God's faithful people. They have failed to live according to his law. And that is especially evident in the way that the poor are being abused. Skip ahead to chapter 5 in Amos. Starting in verse 11, Amos giving what Yahweh says, you trample on the poor and you force him to give you grain. So therefore, even though you've built stone mansions, you're not going to live in them. Even though you've planted lush vineyards, you're not going to drink their wine, for I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. You oppress the righteous, you take bribes, you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Remember what we were talking about earlier this summer. What what were the courts supposed to be like? They're supposed to be fair. They're supposed to be impartial. The courts weren't to be used by people to take advantage of others. And it's interesting, as we, as we looked at, there are some specific prohibitions about using the, the courts to favor either poor people or rich people. There's one verse you may remember in Exodus where God says specifically, don't use the courts to give a poor person an unfair advantage. Just because somebody's poor doesn't mean they have the right to go to court and, and deprive somebody who has more money of what they have unjustly. But what we find is an expectation that God's people would have righteous judges who would judge justly, who would judge according to God's Torah, and that the courts would not be used as a means of exploiting the poor. Those should have been a place where the poor could have their day in court, not the place where the poor could once again be taken advantage of by those who are more wealthy and more powerful. Then if you flip ahead to Amos, starting in chapter, 20, chapter 5, verse 21, we'll come on the passage that Martin Luther King quoted. I hate, God says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand it when you get together. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them. Even if you bring choice peace offerings, I'm not going to have any regard for them. I am not impressed, God says. Away with the noise of your songs. I'm not going to listen to the music of your harps. Is that because God doesn't like harp music? No, that is not. No, I really was trying to get a little interaction here. Wake up. No. It's not that God doesn't like harp music. It's not that God doesn't like offering. God even prescribed in Torah. You've got like the whole first nine chapters of Leviticus or a barbecue manual on exactly how you do all these offerings. God expects his people to be faithful and to follow the law, but following all the prescriptions of Torah for cutting the right part of the animal out and burning the right part at the right time in the right way and dribbling the blood in the right spot the right way, if you're just doing that, and you think that that's going to make God impressed with you, God says you're completely missing the point. You guys are doing all of this religious stuff, but you're not obeying my Torah. Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's what God wants to see. God wants to see his people be faithful. And yeah, he wants them to be faithful in bringing the right offerings, and he wants them to sing the psalms 
and he wants them to play harps if they want to do that, but, but the point is, Amos is saying, Israel has failed to be Israel. And the evidence of that is that the people who are most in need are the people who are most taken advantage of. Again, remember, we talked about this when we did the Torah series, and we talked about it this summer as well. God gives wealth to his people. Why? So they can hoard it and keep it for themselves? No. God blesses his people as a whole, as a whole community, so that those who have abundance can take care of those who are in need. God, remember in Deuteronomy, we saw God says, look, I don't want there to be any poor people in the land. In my community, I don't want anybody to be starving. So here's what happens. When there are people who are poor, when there are people who are in need, those of you who have more are going to help them out. And I'm going to bless you, God says, so abundantly. It's not like there's going to be a shortage. There is going to be more than enough to go around. But the responsibility lies with the people who have the wealth to share it with those who don't. This is what I expect you to do. This is how it works. And God says, remember, of course, I've given you this land. That wasn't yours in the first place. I'm giving you prosperity. I'm giving you health. I'm giving you my Torah so that you can have a well-functioning society. There's absolutely no way that you people would have the kind of prosperity that you have if it weren't for me hooking you up in the first place. But I'm doing that because I want to make sure that the folks who are in need are taken care of. And I expect those of you who have wealth to benefit those who are in need. What Amos is saying is what has happened is precisely the opposite. Those of you who have wealth, those of you who have power are using that in order to further your advantage. And so as I was looking at James this week, my, uh, actually Steve Chastain and I have been getting together and, uh, and studying Greek. So as we were there at, at Bateman's on, on uh, Tuesday night, eating wings and drinking beer and studying the Greek New Testament, like you do. We're looking at today's passage, and he said, you know, it reminds me of Amos. It sounds just like Amos. And I think what James is doing, which is the same thing that Martin Luther King was doing, is he's echoing the prophets. What do we find here in James chapter 5? He says, now listen up. You rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and your silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ear of the Lord Almighty. What does that remind you of? In the very first place, somebody, something cries out to God. Abel, yeah, Abel's blood shed by Cain cries out to God from the ground. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, somebody works for you and you pay them their wage at the end of the day, you don't get a medal for that. 
Nobody's going to throw you a parade because you paid your rent on time. It's just what you do. It's what you're expected to do. And it is all the more obscene, James is saying, that those of you who have wealth, who have abundance, who therefore have power, are using that not to serve the poor, but to exploit them. And I want to be very clear, James is not condemning wealth per se. He is condemning the practices of the particular wealthy people to whom he is communicating here. The wealthy who are not serving the poor, but who are exploiting them. The wealthy that are not employing the poor, that are not providing jobs to people who need them. He's condemning those who make them work and then don't pay them for it. Have you ever had that experience where you worked and you didn't get your paycheck? Maybe your paycheck bounced, or maybe you just didn't get it. That happened to me within a few months of when I graduated from college, and I'm like, that's not right. You can't, you can't do that. And that's the right response. It's not right. You can't do that. James is saying, look, God blesses you so that you can be a blessing to others, not so that you can further benefit yourself at the expense of those who are in need. Reminds me of Ezekiel chapter 34. Of course, a lot of things that remind me of Ezekiel. But you remember what Ezekiel says in chapter 34. He's saying, woe to the wicked shepherds. Right? The shepherds are supposed to feed the sheep, and instead they're feeding on the sheep. And there, of course, he's talking about the corrupt leaders of the political and religious establishment. But he's saying, look, I put you in this position where you have opportunity and you have responsibility. And not only are, it's not even just that you failed to do it, it's that you are actively taking advantage of the benefits you have in order to exploit others. And that's not okay. And the other passage that I'm reminded of as I look at this is back in Proverbs chapter 3. And this is a passage that's often misunderstood. Chapter 3 of Proverbs, verse 27, 28 says, Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it to you tomorrow when you now have it with you. And a lot of people read this and they think this is about charity. And, and I don't think it is. It, it, as I understand the Hebrew, this is basically saying pay your rent on time. If somebody works for you, pay them. If you have a check that's due, write it and drop it in the mail. Don't withhold any good thing, anything you're responsible for remunerating somebody with. When it's in your power to act, you owe the money, pay it. And so as much as I love the way Rick handled the last verse of chapter 4 last week, and I really would encourage you to go back, I love the way he, he brought that in at the end. I think there's another way you might read chapter 4 of James, uh, verse 17, 
you know, the, the chapter divisions were not original. James didn't sit down and, and say, okay, now I'm going to begin chapter 5 and put a big 5 at the beginning. The chapters and verse numbers came in later. But I think it's possible to read chapter, seven, chapter 4, verse 17, not as going with what came before, but as going with what comes after. When James says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, to him that's sin. I think we can read verse 17 as the principle that he's articulating and then talking about the application of in chapter 5. So all you rich people then who know the good you ought to do, James says, and don't do it, to you that is sin. If you have somebody work for you and you don't pay him, to you that is sin. And Again, this reminds me of the story with Jesus and the rich guy who goes and stores up all this grain, and he says, you idiot, this very night your life's going to be taken from you, and how's all this stuff you hoarded going to help you then? James is saying you take things away from people that you owe it to, and they do that to hoard your stuff. Well, guess what? That's all going to get moth-eaten. It's going to corrode Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in these last days. And those wages that you failed to pay are crying out against you. And I think I read you condemned and murdered innocent men who were deposing you, again, as, as abusing the powers of the courts. So this is, again, not a blanket condemnation of wealth. This is James saying that those who have wealth are responsible for doing something with it to care for those who don't. And I don't think James thinks anybody should be getting gold stars for doing that. James says this is simply what God expects of you. This is not a big deal. This is just what you ought to do. This is what it is to be Israel. This is what it is to be the church. And I do at this point want to offer a specific point of application that may be useful for some of you. Outside, our kids are having a car wash right now. And they're doing this car wash to benefit the Compassion Children that we sponsor for Gosh, almost 10 years now, our children's ministry has sponsored a couple of children through Compassion International. And what that means is that every month we provide money for the care and education of, of these children who are underprivileged and who are in need. And that's something that we set up specifically as something that the kids were responsible for. The children's ministry took responsibility for that. We don't use the funds that we take out of our offering to supply that the kids are supposed to do that. And as a practical matter, that doesn't mean that when your six-month-old shows up in the nursery that they're supposed to be clutching a five. 
well, when they're little, you put the money in for them, and then when they get old enough to actually grab it themselves and put it in, you give it to them so they do that, and then eventually the idea is that they can, you know, take some of their allowance and give, and then maybe like take the money that they've earned and give it. The idea is that they can kind of grow into what it means to be generous and faithful and to, to care for those who are in need. But every once in a while, as you'll recall, we have these fundraisers like the lemonade stand or the car wash that we have today. And the reason we have those is that not everybody is doing their part in this. If you break it down by kid, it's basically two bucks a kid per month. If you break it down by family, it's something like three or four bucks per family a month. It's not a lot of money. It's not something that is insurmountable. It's something we should be able to handle as a community, i.e., something that the kids' ministry should be able to take care of it on its own rather than hitting up the adults. And as happy as I am going to be that my car finally is going to get washed, it really shouldn't be necessary for me to make a donation so that we can simply catch up on our regular support for the Compassion Kids. We're just supposed to do what we ought to do. That's expected of us. That's... What has to happen? And if it doesn't, what happens is somebody else is going to have to pick up the slack. And that's what has happened in the past. That's not how we want to do it. It would be great if we could have a fundraiser to say, let's raise money so that we can buy one of these Compassion Kids a bike. Or let's raise money so that we can, can give them a gift on their birthday rather than let's raise this so we can give the necessary 38 bucks a month. And yeah, it's fun and it's cute. And I don't want to harsh their mellow out there, but we all have to do our part, and God enables us to. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. That's what the prophets had to say. That's what James has to say. That's what Jesus had to say. And that's what Martin Luther King had to say. Sometimes it's really not all that complicated. It's just about being who you are and fulfilling those responsibilities that you have. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful that you give us the privilege of serving those who are in need around us. And I, I am so grateful, Father, as I look at the many ways that people in this congregation have cared for those who are in need, people in this body, people outside this body. I see this happening. Lord, you have made this happen. You have made it possible for us to do this. And we're grateful for the blessings that you give us and for the abundance you provide. We pray that as you provide these things for us, that we would always be aware that we are given what we are given, not just so that we can take advantage of and get what we want. And we're certainly not given wealth or power or influence so that we can use it to harm or exploit other people, especially not those who are themselves without wealth or power. We pray that we'd be faithful to recognize that everything we have that is good does come from you in the first place, that it is to be used according to to your priorities and not our own. We pray that we would be a faithful church, that we would be faithful families and faithful people. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.